0: First of all, hello everybody, welcome. Give us a wave if you're alive. (laughs) Great. Blessings to all of you. Um, In case you're not in uh, southern England at the moment, we're in the middle of a heat wave, um, which is lovely for some of us, not so lovely for others. And we'll maybe talk about that in a bit. But let's, um, before Um, I introduce um, Felicity, why don't we take a minute's quiet and just bring ourselves into the space. And um, So if you want to, please just close your eyes. And as best you can, just allow whatever's been happening during the day. Or during the week, just let it go. And bring yourselves. Fully. Into this time. And space. Here. Now. And thank you. And maybe a gentle stretch. And, uh, so I'm um, about to bring Felicity center stage. Um, I imagine you all know her. I've got um, one of her books just sitting here. And you'll know her as the um, pioneer initiator of the spiritual midwives project in the UK, which has been wonderfully influential in bringing a more sensitive and holistic approach to um, end of life care. And um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So um, let's spotlight Felicity as well. There we are. Hi Felicity.
1: Hi, William. hi, Hi, everybody. I'm really good. Thank you. It is very warm, as you said, but that's lovely. All feels good. Lovely and relaxing. So it's great to be here. It really is.
0: And I'm assuming you've been for a swim today because you live near the ocean, don't you? Have you been for a swim?
1: Oh, I have. I've had two swims. Oh, yes. Really? <laughs> uh, it's part of my um, self-care regime. Um, it, it nourishes me, replenishes my soul. So uh, I, I get in the water as often as I can.
0: Are you a, an all year round swimmer? or? <laughs>
1: um, I'd like to pretend I was, but I'm going to yeah. have to say no. It's sort of um something like May to October but maybe this year I'll extend it I'm I'm just working on it at the moment we'll yeah, cause, see
0: because when I when I met you and we had lunch together a couple of weeks ago I, I said something and you looked so shocked I, I, I said um, do you ever go in wearing a wetsuit oh. and you just you just gave me that kind of um
1: oh absolutely not no <laughs> no nature has provided um and I you know if I if I was an animal I would certainly be a seal and a seal is kind of my totem you know I, I I am so at home in the water so um it's you know when the water's just down the road from me as it is it's just my joy to jump in as often as I can
0: mm. well the, the wetsuit would be akin to a seals layer wouldn't it
1: well it might look like one but you know a seal can feel its way through the water (laughs) and feel all the nuances changes of temperature and the movement of the ocean and i'm very attuned to energy and movement so uh no i'd hate to wear a Mm wetsuit it's got to just be skin
0: (laughs) okay okay, about a reincarnate mermaid um
1: yeah, probably, oh, probably, probably like. somewhere, yes, in my in my past life somewhere.
0: <laughs> so, so listen, let, let, let's let's move gently into the theme of our conversation. Um, so and we're going to do, do it kind of biographically and historically, and we'll, we'll then we'll move forward towards the begin towards how you started um, the Soul Midwife project. Tell me, where were you born and what kind of parents did you have and what was it that took you into being aware of death and dying? Because you mentioned somewhere in the books, you write about the fact that it was early experiences that first opened you up to um, the need for more sensitive and sensible end of life care. So where, where were you born? Who were your parents?
1: Okay, Um, so I was born in Redroof in Cornwall, but my parents actually lived in Falmouth. It was just the maternity hospital. It was on the other side of the coast. Um, And my parents um, uh, were, stroke are, extraordinary people. Um, My father um, at the time was a journalist, a writer, um, and then became a politician, Um, very, very, Um, involved with the community and involved with the whole kind of heritage of Cornwall as well Um, my Cornish family go way back as long as far as at least the 1400s that we can trace so that's very much part of me the the Celtic um, blood and a lot of Irish blood as well because the ancestors came from Ireland and set Settled in Cornwall, and um, my mother was very young. Um, She was from South Africa, uh, born in Durban, but my parents met in Cape Town. My dad was a purser at the time for the Union Castle line, and he met my mum at a party. They fell madly in love, and um, about six weeks later, they were married. So they were married in Cape Town, um, came back to Falmouth. My mother was horrified. (laughs) by by life in Cornwall, because she always, she didn't wear shoes, you know, she was just a free spirit. And she also um, felt that she, well, she was very glamorous. So she sort of arrived in in a very closed community. And my grandmother was a little bit fierce to start with, I think, and thought, you know, that things might not work out well, because there was such a conflict of, of of what the reality was going to be. But anyway, um, both amazing parents, gregarious, full of life, full of adventure. I was, I'm their only child um and um no surprise really but they divorced when I was six and they both um then went off and 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 sort of lived their lives I I had contact with them but it was quite small quite minimal um and I was sent to live with my grandmother um who was my father's mother and she was everything to me she was mother father grandmother she was role model she was this wonderful gorgeous wise kind woman who was also very worldly and just to give you a snapshot of what she was like she was tiny five foot two i mean i'm only five foot two and a half she was very small and she was very round and she had enormous bosoms and was very cuddly and she drank a lot of gin and tonic and she smoked a lot of cigarettes and she had boyfriends so you know she lived life to the full and she really uh trained me to do that as well um so I had an incredible childhood we lived in a can very I just old pa-
0: house pause. can I just pause yeah? for a second
1: of course
0: trained you in the gin and tonic trained you no. in <laughs>
1: <laughs> she was very prudish and very Victorian in yeah. as much as children should be seen, not heard and, you know, go to bed on time. It was a very, very rigid, strict childhood. Yeah. But it was full of love and full of joy and full of delicious food and adventures. So it was a real Enid Blyton childhood. It was. So
0: give, give, give me an example of the because you're very ebullient and enthusiastic yeah. about her and your parents. Right. So, but you're painting another picture, which is which is of a slightly gin-soaked woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, and advent- I, what kind of adventures were there?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, we didn't have very much money. So uh-huh. our adventures were were tailored to being really not very expensive. So she had an old Volkswagen Beetle and she'd say, packing up a picnic and we're going to go for a drive today. It's a magical mystery tour. So we'd set off with all the buckets and the spades and chicken sandwiches and a flask of tea or whatever. And we get in the car and she would just drive somewhere. And it was just absolutely lovely. Not only that, but she was a great storyteller. So she would tell me amazing things about where we were or where we were going all about her parents and the things they'd done with her. Her father had been one of the captains of the Cutty Sark and he was the the last captain to bring her back from Portugal back to British waters so she had amazing stories to tell about his journeys coming home and he always brought her an animal from abroad you know a cat from Siam a proper Siamese cat or a monkey that lived in a tree in the garden and bit the postman and had to be found a new home you know wherever we went there was a story that went with it so it was a very colourful lovely delightful life and we didn't have very much money and our but our house was very cozy um and old-fashioned and a bit biffed up around the edges nothing posh nothing smart and we had a cat called bonkers that um, was always allowed to sleep um with us uh, we shared a bedroom and, and i had various animals as well you know it was just very happy so this i suppose This sets the scene for me because when I was 13 she developed this horrific cough and was really really unwell and she had a diagnosis of um, lung cancer and it was she didn't really talk about it. I knew that something really devastating had happened that she'd had bad news and that she wasn't going to process it in any way and she did the classic thing of doing the, the ostrich burying its head in the sand and I think she thought she never told me this but I think she thought that if she never registered it or thought about it it may never happen, it may never catch up with her. And up to a point that worked, it was quite interesting looking back. But over the period of a year or so, she started to decline and I started to do a little bit more to look after her and and do more things around the house. And I was gradually beginning to take over um, a lot of her responsibilities. we did all this on our own because she didn't tell anyone
0: that she was dying. Can I, let me ask you something.
1: Yeah. You,
0: you said that when she started to get ill and received the diagnosis, she didn't process the information. Is, is that you in retrospect, understanding what happened? Or did you as a very young teenager have a, an intuitive sense that she could have been handling it differently?
1: Uh, I was a very, very sensitive child, and was always able to tune in and read um, emotions, read energy. I'm pretty sure that she didn't discuss this with anyone because, late, you know, later on, as we, as I came through all this, and once she died, nobody, everyone was quite shocked to know that she'd been that ill so that was that was a big kind of whitewash that went on Um, and I also it was interesting uh, because when I went to live with her when I was six one of my immediate thoughts was oh I'm so happy I've come to live here but oh my god she's going to die she won't she won't survive my teenagehood probably. I don't, I don't know why I thought that, but I always knew in the back of my mind, she might not live.
0: So did, did, were you conscious of the fact that you were, had a sensitivity that was unusually highly developed? Were you aware of that? Or did you just think it was normal?
1: Um, I, I, I thought it was normal up to a point, but when I was six, <laughs> I saw an angel Um, I told my parents who were in a deep argument at the time I said I have got to tell you I've seen an angel And and they both said oh that's lovely that's very nice and I remember thinking at the time you're not getting this you're not hearing me but I I think from that time onwards possibly earlier I'd always been extremely sensitive and I always felt I had one foot in one world and one foot in another. So with granny and her illness, I I certainly was, I didn't want to realise that she was dying, but I kind of knew she was. And I also knew she wasn't telling anyone else. So it, it felt like a secret or, or the elephant in the room anyway. Um, and we didn't really talk about obviously because it was the elephant in the room but what we did do was we'd lie in bed at night because we had single beds in a big room and we used to talk in the dark and I loved it because she'd say to me oh I've just had a wonderful conversation with my mother about such and such and I would think oh that's really odd because her mother had died years ago. I say, how can you have done that? Oh, I talk to her all the time. I've always talked to her. Just because someone dies doesn't mean you stop talking to them. So immediately that was normal. And I was I, I was given permission almost to, to go with that. Mm-hmm. Um. So while she was dying, we did have amazing conversations about all sorts of thing she wasn't very spiritual actually um, she was very practical um, but she understood my sensitivity and my my blossoming spirituality perhaps yeah
0: so very fortunate in a way that you were with her and also very poignant and tragic that she died
1: yeah, um, it was it was awful. I mean, we we kept going really well for quite a long time until the last five weeks, and then she was taken into hospital uh, because she couldn't breathe, um, and my neighbours took me in to live with them. They had a daughter the same age, and we were friends, so I I went and lived with them, and they were wonderful and it was great but I didn't see her for a five-week period and then eventually um, my dad came and picked me up one night and said you need to come and say goodbye uh, to granny which was a bit of a shock because I didn't actually know that we were that far that we were that close so he drove me across to the hospital which was a hideous place. It was an old TB sanatorium. I remember driving there and it was a sort of gothic storm. The trees were bending and swaying and the the water, the rain was lashing down. And I went in to see her and I just couldn't believe my eyes. It was the most grim room. It had shiny lino on the floor and breeze block walls that were painted a sort of lime green. And she was in a metal cot with the sides pulled up and there was a strip light above the bed. I just, you know, it was so glaring and so harsh and so sterile. And I remember thinking then, how on earth have we got to this where at home it's cosy and there's a lovely smell of cooking and the cats are walking in and out why why is she here when she could be at home and it could be beautiful and you know we could be holding her hand and it would be a lovely situation but it was um so stark and so grim and i remember feeling quite scared because also she'd lost so much weight and she was like a little tiny monkey she looked like a chimpanzee she was so tiny and emaciated and breathing um very irregular very um difficult breathing and i i remember standing at the bottom of the cot and putting my hand through and touching her foot because i wasn't really sure what I was allowed to do and I was a bit frightened and a bit you know scared about what was happening and just for a minute she looked at me and and her gaze locked with mine and she looked at me as if to say I'm so sorry but the game's over now and it it was like a thunderbolt going through my heart I really thought oh god this is just terrible and then in that almost instant I thought one day when I'm grown up (laughs) I'm going to make sure this doesn't happen anymore. She deserves better than this. There is so much more that that could be done to make death good and so that's William that's really how all this started (laughs) Um, and I kept that feeling with me um, well forevermore. What then happened was um, is that I, I went to live um, with my father's family for a bit. That didn't really work out. He had young children and it was difficult. So that I then went to live with my mother in Copenhagen. She had remarried and um, she had married someone who was an alcoholic. And um, what happened two years later was uh, that he died of a heart attack, age 36. And again, I was plunged into that whole death energy. Um, and what happened was that I, I had scar tissue that gave me something that gave me some strength. And my mother was in a complete disarray. She'd recently had a baby. My husband- Of
0: course. What do you mean by scar tissue that gave you strength?
1: Because I'd gone through my grandmother's death And I'd gone through a huge period afterwards of uncertainty and instability. I didn't know where I was going to be living or who with. And in a way that gave me some resilience, it also gave me a lot of time to think about death and to process it in my mind and to embody the experience as well. And when my stepfather died and I was just 16 then... I I had something, I had something I could draw on, I had some experience, so I was able to really um, support my mother, who was completely at sea, and my little tiny half-sister, and um, again, I thought, actually, I can do this, it's okay, I, I've got something that i can offer at least it'll keep us going until you know things resolve a bit so that was my my second sort of brush with with death within a very close family member
0: so let me ask you a a, a probing psychological question if i might right? yeah of course. I'm, very, I'm very curious about something at the very beginning of our conversation you spoke quite a, enthusiastically and ebulliently about how wonderful your parents were right they were interesting fantastic exciting people right mm. but they then abandoned you or passed you over to your grandma mm. which turned out to be a great thing okay. but it's not so great that they abandoned you right mm. so the, the bit this interest that i'm wanting to get at is mm-hmm. you've got this infectious upbeat attitude, which seems to be deeply genuine and authentic. (laughs) Really authentic, right? So I I just want a little bit of how come you're saying such wonderful things about your parents when they abandoned you? That's part of the question. And the second, the second part of the question is this, this glass half full Aspect of you, right? Which seems really authentic, right?
1: Yeah,
0: is it authentic, or have you got kind of melancholy sitting underneath it? Uh,
1: Oh my goodness, there's lots of layers here. Yeah, there
0: is lots of layers. But what's important about it is is that it leads into the, the care and the sensitivity and the awareness you give to end of life care and the whole training of in the soul midwifery world.
1: Yeah. Okay. I. I. Yeah. I can. I can weave into the connection with that thank you yes um so to start with my parents yes um it's complex it's complicated i can't say that i just thought wow my parents are amazing it doesn't matter that they've both gone off and they've left me <laughs> in the lurch which they really had done um my mother was very 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 damaged by it for many years, and that came out in many ways that were really um, devastating for her. It gave her a lot of of deep anguish that she's still working with, um, and that's 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 been an ongoing work in progress for her. The flip side of that is that over all these years, and I'm I'm the age now that my grandmother was when she died. So there's an interesting kind of circle that's closing here. I think with my mother and my father, my mother is alive, um, she we we have opened out and had conversations and that has been part of our healing process for both of us. I can't say any of this was easy but we are both quite blessed by being quite upbeat but there was a lot of complex stuff there. My dad was different. My dad it was um, very alpha male, very driven, high achieving, found it very difficult to have close relationships with people. He didn't get them, he didn't welcome them, um, until he got to about the age 60, and then he suddenly mellowed, and I, it was more or less the time that my children were coming along, and they were little. And it was as if he suddenly realized that the relationships were actually really important and had to be worked at. And he really, really worked at it. And it came right. So he died during COVID. And that was very sad, because with all the work I do, I'd always thought I'd be able to support him didn't happen but um it's we we did have a complicated relationship but again it turned into a good one and so i'm i feel very thankful to them for being who they were and are um because they've given me a lot of themselves uh, within that although I my dad had the sensitivity mum hasn't so much but dad actually had excruciating sensitivity and for a politician that was quite an interesting conflict I think
0: okay, <laughs> so
1: well, I don't know if that if
0: that yeah, not it, 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 Thank you for letting me explore that it was probably a, qu- a question you were not expecting.
1: I wasn't I wasn't. No I know but like, it,
0: it was just it's just you are so such a glass half full creature i think (laughs) i i just wanted a little bit of unpacking so that people could see that you don't skate over the the challenges and the complexity of emotional relationships you're not you're not in denial of them at all
1: i i i look at them in a way that they help to ripen the soul and that where there is hard work to be done it's always worth doing but i do have a melancholy side to me i do actually why i'm i and i am half glass half full as well but i mean my taste in music is quite melancholy i also need a lot of time on my own for just reflection and peace and quiet so i do have an aspect of me that is very much um quite different you know I, for all the bubbliness and the smiling I like to be quite quiet as well and I'm quite shy in an odd way um, and and very sensitive so yeah <laughs> <Right. That's, laughs> work with a lot of com- conflicting things there
0: yeah well it's not I, I admire your willingness to be transparent in this conversation I think that that's yes. a- admirable and I'm, and I'm really grateful for it and I'm sure everybody who's watching and listening will appreciate it too so let's let's move forward because i I know you then you had a period in journalism before you segued into the work that you do do you want to just take us quickly through the journalism and then how how this old midwifery thing started
1: yes so um briefly i'd always hoped i might study medicine because i I, I always have had an affinity with people who aren't well, and I love physiology and anatomy, and I, I do a lot of energy medicine work. Um, I Because I'd gone to live abroad, that wasn't going to happen. My education really finished when, when I was 14. Um, my next love was writing and again, listening to people and hearing their stories. And so I went into journalism, which um, opened some doors for me. I had a great time um, as a local cub reporter on a newspaper, um, and then went into um, uh, national newspaper writing as a feature writer, specialised in health and medicine, but also did um, gardens and interiors uh, for a while. It's a quite broad spread. But medicine is the passion and especially um, uh, I haven't mentioned but my dad was a healer and uh, so some of that came through Um, and always you know love working with my hands um, and when people aren't well that's always been the natural thing to be offering and working with. So from journalism and that's how I got into That's how soul midwifery um, became and just again, I'll I'll tell that story quickly in a nutshell, but I was very interested in working with um, people who were at end of life, because I had an affinity and some experience with end of life anyway. As you've just heard. And I was asked at school one day, I was picking my kids up, another mother came up to me and said, one of the other mothers has got breast cancer and she's been told she probably has six months to live. She wants to tell her story. Could she tell it to you? Would you write about it? And I said well yes of course I will so she was my first one I ended up writing about six women who were dying of breast cancer they were all in their mid-30s as I was and they all had young children and this was my apprenticeship so I spent months and months and months with the first woman and um I was talking about her treatment, her diagnosis, her prognosis, how she was coping with all the ins and outs of it. And it was so interesting because the minute I put the notebook away always and we had a cup of tea, the real story would come out. And they she would always say to me, oh, it's so lovely to be able to tell somebody about how this really shitty stuff really is, because you're you're, you're about the only person I can tell this to, because I don't want to upset my family. And the doctors and nurses are busy. They can't listen to this. But but you seem to be able to just listen to it. and I." I had the sense, just the presence of mind to think that is one skill that maybe I have that can help. And that is being present and just listening. So no rescuing, no fixing, no answers, but I can listen. And that was really the beginning of the journey just listening. And the stories they told me were phenomenal. They made my hair stand on end, William. Um, Stories of feeling really isolated, feeling that they had to be um, optimistic and outgoing about their treatment and, you know, that they would survive, whereas inside their internal dialogue with themselves was saying, not going to. And they were having to work on that themselves. So I was so privileged to be privy to these inner dialogues. And there was an intimacy and an authenticity that came from being in that whole kind of sphere with them. It was so powerful. It knocked me for six each time. I come away reeling from hearing the depth of their experience. And then as things went on, because I knew quite a lot about complementary therapy, I was saying to them occasionally things like, oh, you can't sleep. Well, have you tried lavender oil or have you tried chamomile tea or would you like to do some breathing exercises with me to calm you down we'd all had kids we knew how to do breathing for pain but they'd forgotten it and needed someone to kind of do it with them so all the stuff i was doing was happening incredibly organically and i was stepping way outside the role of being the journalist but i was slipping into a new role that didn't even have a name or a definition so this was a very um accidental route to what then became soul midwifery what
0: year was this more or less
1: well i'm so bad with years ish. i think it's about 1995
0: ish oh, so 20 years ago
1: yeah about 20 years ago yes and um i was i was growing in confidence as well with it because at the beginning i you know, I was a bit nervous. I'm way out of my comfort zone, but they were so appreciative and saying it's so nice to be able to talk to someone who's not feeling squeamish about talking about death, and it's so nice to be able to have you rub my arm while I wait for my medication to kick in. You know, very simple things like that. So in a very short story i worked with six young women who were dying with three of them i was with them at the end because i got to know them so well and their families as well and at the end the last one i thought this is my work i i don't want to be a journalist anymore i want to give holistic support and spiritual support to anyone who's dying because there is a a real gap here. This is where we need to join dots up with clinical care, hmm. and, and everything else. So that's where the work really started. So, so
0: tell us about, I especially, I mean, I'm interested in this. How did you actually start the school up the training up? Because there's a, you know, you've got to have a curriculum, you've got to have, blah. blah, blah you know, all that stuff. How did you actually get that going? And when did you have your first students?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I can tell you all of that. So after the sixth one died, I thought, right, I've just got to start doing this work. How do I do it? There was no role anywhere for a non Clinician, to be sitting at the bedside with a dying person. You weren't allowed in, you know, there wasn't anything. What I could do though was volunteer. And three of the women had died at our local hospice, and the hospice knew me because I'd been in visiting so much. And I rang them up and said, Have you got anything I can be doing? And they said, Well, would you like to feed people? Uh, We need someone to help feed. Fine, I can do that. So I did that for about a year, um, feeding people end of life. That was a huge learning curve. There were people who didn't want to talk. There were people who did want to talk. There were people who spat food at me. There were people who bit me. There were people who looked at the wall. You know, dying people are dying people no one size fits all. I learned so much from that. Um, I then started sitting with people who didn't have visitors. That was another aspect of the learning curve. And what I did see was that there seemed to be a process going on in the in the dying um, trajectory um, that's, that people might be angry or irritated. Then I saw that people were often seeing people or hearing things that were beyond the normal radar. All sorts of interesting things came my way. And I think that's where the journalist in me came up again because I suddenly thought, I want to know what this is about because this isn't written about in the textbooks that I get my hands on. Um, There is so much more to dying than we're being told about. And I became like a mad boffin and I went and I talked to everyone I could think of, priests, nuns, mediums, shaman, um, other practitioners, From other medical paradigms, you know. Tell me what you know about dying. I need to know. And I heard a million different things, and then I just kind of sat there, joining up dots, and it was the most lovely experience. (laughs) Thinking, oh yes, that makes sense with such and such. The biggest, biggest clue of all came from um, Tibetan medicine, Um, and of course, with them, dying is just this—you know—centuries, thousands of year old science almost, art and science, and it all just began to make sense. So all the funny things I was seeing at the bedside that didn't have an explanation in Western medicine suddenly had a kind of a, they did fit into a matrix, a bigger picture. So all I did was join the dots up and then come up with a model of the dying process which is physical emotional and psychospiritual and now that is our therapeutic model that we use in soul midwifery so that's how i started that took me 10 years of bedside field work but i what happened was in the hospice that i'd be sitting with someone who was at end of life just being there and the hospice staff would say afterwards you seem to make a difference to the person. Tell us what you do. What are you actually doing? And I said, hmm, well, nothing much. It's not rocket science, but I've held their hand or I've sung to them or I've read to them or I've held their feet or whatever. And they'd say, would you give a talk about that? And I said, well, okay. You know, I'm feeling like a great imposter, but just doing that. And then that grew and grew. And so then I started writing the books and then the school was set up. Um, The first three students sat in my sitting room. I was so nervous that I just read all my notes from a piece of paper and, you know, just and they were lovely and were very kind, (laughs) but it wasn't great teaching, I have to admit, but it grew organically. So there was no sort of plan to follow exactly <laughs> it just grew
0: well maybe no plan but you at this stage you've got about 900 graduates is that right that have been yeah. through the course
1: i have i've got about 900 900- graduates maybe a few more than that now in the uk and abroad in the us and canada well everywhere um, not all of them practice uh, some people want to become mm. professional soul midwives um, and it has become more of a profession now people charge for their services, if that's what they want to be doing. Um, Some people are volunteers um, and some people um, just train because they have a family member or a best friend who's coming towards end of life. So it's quite a varied picture.
0: But with with 900 graduates, it it means that you have set up an organisation. Yeah. And you have delivered something that became a curriculum yeah. with learning outcomes and all that kind of stuff yeah. um how was that for you to create a form for delivering the work
1: yeah i it it started with such a, with everything I do it's gut feelings about what feels important and what can be taught and what can be shared and at the beginning it was very much me sitting in my kitchen or in my sitting room saying you know what if you had a dying person over in the corner this is how you might approach them and how you might talk to them or not this is how you might do give them a therapeutic um, session to relieve anxiety or pain was very much just me sharing as it's developed and it has developed so much more now and especially since covid where all our teaching is really done online at the moment still um, via zoom it's had to be really um um put into segments and with a really strong and a really sound structure. So it is very, very structured now. Um, But one of the things that I like about the training is that it gives you the nuts and the bolts, but then everybody will take it and go out in their own way and deliver it in their own way. And I think that's what makes it um, an art rather than a prescriptive role because we come in with different gifts and then we use our gifts in various ways with the people that we're working with so yes I had to do all that kind of organizational thing that's been quite hard for me because I don't have that kind of brain but somehow it has come together and a great moment was um, getting soul midwifery in its less technical form, we call it TLC, so it can be used in a clinical environment very easily, um, and we've got that in the hospitals in the NHS um, in Dorset at the moment, anyway. And that that was such a great moment, thinking, yes, you know, here is something that works that can be used by clinicians as well, and uh, we, there are quite a lot of projects that are running like that. So. Uh, it's come a long way <laughs>
0: yes no, no I mean huge congratulations to you
1: Whoa. and huge
0: gratitude for pulling it off so, so here, we, here we go um, game show
1: yeah
0: what what for you
1: yeah
0: are the three most important things in soul midwifery oh. so you got you've, you've got a what, what are the jewels in there that you would want people who train with you to take away and there may be some that are not explicit in the curriculum but sit in your heart i don't, I don't know i don't know what would be the three yeah. special special things that you'd love okay. your um, graduates
1: yes well i think one of the big things is uh treat everybody that you work with as if they are a very loved member of your own family I think that really gives us something special it we haven't got that kind of professional slightly removed thing of oh well yes you know we do what we do I want people to really love the people they work with and that might sound hippie and a bit woolly but the love makes the difference. It really, really does. Um, and I'm really passionate about that. Another thing is, um, everybody's idea about a good death is different. No, there, Nobody, you can't say what a good death is, because it is different to everybody. And to honour that, however odd or difficult it might be to help them to achieve people's they will have their own idea and that to be honored um and a and a golden nugget this is i don't know if this is exactly in the way that you were thinking but i i keep saying this to people when someone's dying when you're near someone who's dying or who's at end of life or who's frightened and who's fearful slow right down just slow right down and come from that heart space and that is absolutely essential in relaying the sort of energy that i would hope everyone working as a soul midwife can give there is nothing rushed there it is totally focused on that person that you're working with so i don't know if does that fit into three things i'm
0: more 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 or less and they're they're beautiful and they're inspiring so let me um, let's, let's 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 go into territory that may be a little bit um, more sensitive culturally. Yeah. So your dad, you said was a healer. Yes. Your grandma used to lie in bed talking to her mum. Yes. You have healing skills, and you mentioned energy work earlier on um inside the NHS talking about that kind of stuff um it's provocative mm-hmm. so I I know for myself and the work I do not to talk about that kind of stuff inside the NHS because it's <laughs> as I say it's provocative yeah but inside this circle of friends that we have sitting with us right now right in this yeah. conversation yeah it, 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 it would seem uh, appropriate to surmise that your worldview mm-hmm. uh, includes life after death. Mm-hmm. It does. Um, it does. And that there's a, kind, there's a, the, there's a for want of a better phrase, there's a kind of soul's journey mm-hmm. happening there. Mm. Do you need your students to uh, consciously adopt that as a worldview or do you just allow it to sit there in the background? Mm. How how do you work with that so that you don't provoke the the atheists so to speak? (laughs)
1: Um, I suppose by definition a lot of the people that come to me who want to become soul midwives probably have an innate feeling about survival of consciousness even if they can't explain it or categorize it so it's not so much a thing of people i'm working with i although i must say i i'm not prescriptive at all in any belief system so we all have our own beliefs and they should all be honored as well and i'm not here to try and persuade anyone otherwise but i think in doing the work, I love this actually, that in doing the work, I mean, I have doctors and nurses who train in this model of working with the dying as well, soul midwifery, Um, in doing the work and in having that close connection with friends, patients, we call them friends, it, it just naturally evolves this kind of organic understanding of, of what we call death and what we see after death. I don't have to sit there and wave a flag saying, this is what I believe. I just, I just, I just smile <laughs> and invite <laughs> the, the realization so, so, so that you, something special.
0: <laughs> you just used a lovely phrase. You just used a lovely phrase, what we see death. What do you mean that? What, what after death?
1: What do I mean by after death? Well, you see, I'm very well, well, we, you... sorry, you broke Go up then and I couldn't hear you. What did you can you repeat
0: that? You, one? you, you a, minute, a minute ago, you said what we see after death the people who sit with you, the doctors, the nurses, your students who accompany people in end of life, they have an experience with the friend. Yes. And they have a, you then use the phrase "what we see after death" as if the, there's an awareness of something happens yes. after someone has actually died. What are yeah. you talking about?
1: Okay, <laughs> what am I talking about? I think to do yeah. the, the to do the work that we do to do it at its best, we have to have sensitivity and love and compassionate compassion. That goes without saying. And I and when we have sat, when we've cared for someone, when we've supported them, when they have died, there is there is a natural understanding, connection, realization that they haven't just vanished, that there is still something there, an afterglow, if you like. It's it we don't have very good language for this, but um. I believe that when I sat with someone, for instance, I will always talk to them for a few hours at least. I will light a candle. I will carry on talking and reassuring and saying, you're not alone. Enjoy. Enjoy this journey. All will be well. Go to the light or whoever's there for you. And I will keep up the dialogue. And that is another part of our work, which reflects in a way because we're holistic companions and therapists but we're also spiritual companions and I think that is so, so that, that, that comes into that part of the care of the newly dead is a very important part of our work as well
0: so forgive me for interrupting
1: no no Dear. so
0: that's the precise moment of midwifery of the soul yes. into its next stage
1: absolutely yes Absolutely. And holding space while that transition takes place is absolutely um, organic. It's it's pivotal as part of our work in this holding space and being present and in recognizing that death is a sacred event. Um, It is it is something special. And to really honor that um, and to hold to hold space for the families around the bedside who are in a liminal space themselves at time of sharing in the death of a loved one. So it's about really, you know, making sure that that, that is honoured to its greatest extent and supported.
0: Right. So, so what I'm going to extrapolate from that is, there's the sole midwife in a relationship with the friend person who's at uh, end of life that's as loving as if it was the most beloved member of their family plus they've just slowed everything down
1: yeah absolutely i
0: love i love the fact i love the fact that you said they have just slowed everything down Um. and are appropriate to the moment and at the same time going hello you're off now
1: yeah Enjoy
0: the journey in whatever way is appropriate.
1: Absolutely. In whatever way is appropriate. Absolutely. And then just letting that rest and settle for as long as it needs to. Yeah. Yeah. I
0: think that's a great point to pause our conversation. We've been. Are there any. Oh, yeah. Things that you want to bring in?
1: Hold on, William, your your internet yeah. connection is very staticky and um, weaving in and out.
0: <laughs> Ooh, hiss. Ooh, hiss. <laughs> did, did you hear what I just said?
1: No. So say, it, say it again.
0: Um, I asked whether the we're, we're pausing now because I think we've reached a good climax in the conversation. Is there... Are there any questions or comments that have come in in the chat box that you feel you should pass on to Felicity?
1: There are no questions, but there's a lot of beautiful comments about Felicity's classes and work in the world. Oh, thank you. Thank yes. You so um, people's experiences. Wow. Oh. So I'll make it. Is a my copy connection stable now? Uh, yes. Dodgy,
0: dodgy, still dodgy. Is it dodgy? dodgy. I'm so sorry. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, Felicity.
1: Yes. If, if,
0: as your connection seems more stable than mine, which is down the road, they're doing some work on the band cables, I think is what may be happening. Uh-huh. The connection is very stable.
1: Yeah.
0: Very experienced so I'm going to ask you to do something would you if you want to or can would you lead us in a short closing meditation yes that that would work for you
1: yeah I I would work for me I'm very happy to do that um gosh yes I will make something up (laughs) okay um so we I won't go on for too long, Um, but I just invite you to just, uh, just relax and feel your feet getting heavy and just relax your shoulders and just focus on your breath for a few minutes. We'll just do a few really, really deep breaths. And then as you slow down in the way that I was just saying, I'd just like you to feel your heart and feel the energy in your heart as being like the bright sun. And just taking a couple of breaths and feeling that warmth and that luminosity and that connection to the divine and that feeling of being truly at home within yourself. And then with a few, just a couple more breaths, I'd like you to just know that once you have crossed that sacred threshold that that feeling will still be here, that feeling of connection, feeling of the warm and the bright sun and know that you're safe and that you're loved, that you're held in love and that will always be. So just to Reflect on that for a few moments longer. okay and when you're ready open your eyes and come fully back into your body
0: (laughs) well thank you i hope my connection's back felicity thank you so much
1: oh it's been a pleasure william thank you (laughs) I've loved being
0: that was a a deep yeah that was a deep and inspiring conversation let's go take us off let's see everybody if we can go into gallery view and just um, those of you who are there maybe just give um, Felicity a wave of love and gratitude (laughs) They are waves of love and gratitude for (laughs) listening thank you so much that was really beautiful really beautiful and inspiring thank you thank
1: you thank you so much everyone for coming it's lovely to have been in connection with you and lots and lots of love from me as well thank you